Let's get going. We have a lot to be grateful for. And as we talk about, we've been in this series, Being Equipped. Do you realize when we talk about the equipping of God, we need to be grateful for that. Because He's given us all things necessary to get through our lives. Now, our lives on this earth, as far as our physical well-being and whatnot, really is irrelevant. Because the goodness of God is not predicated on how well we walk through this life. The goodness of God is in His nature and His character. As we talked about this equipping, we got to be thankful for all the things that have happened. This morning, when uh, Neil was teaching Bible study, um, you know, he's talking about, he's giving a little bit of his testimony, expanding upon it, and then Alma gives a bit of a testimony of, of some of the stuff that she'd gone through, stuff I'd never heard before, and I'm just absolutely blown away. And why is that important? Because we look back to the past, knowing that based off of that, we can trust God in the future. Like, there's a gratefulness there. Like, it's Memorial Weekend. We are grateful to those that have given their lives to afford us the freedoms. You guys realize how special it is of what we're doing here today? That parts of the world cannot do what we are doing? Like, that's huge. That is because you had men, as they were separating, recognize that God had given us an alienable right that should not be infringed upon by any governmental entity. Therefore, they put a document in place to make sure that those were protected, and that's the government's job. And at any point in time that they try to infringe upon, we come back to that original document. Do you know why else we do that? We do this because of the Word. Because of what it says. Anytime that something is coming against you, we turn back to the Word knowing that this is the promise of God. You see, this is where we lie. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. It all goes back to this. As we have begun to get into this more and more, we have looked at examples of where the very Word of God, remember what the Word of God, it is the spoken, promised Word of God, what God has said. And every time when somebody responds in that way, they are successful. We use two examples. We had the example of Eve, and we've got the example of Jesus. We have the example of the Israelites, and again, we look at the example of the apostles. What we see with Eve is that she began to question God's word as the enemy attacked her and said, hey, did God really say that? You've got the Israelites that were told that God is going to bring them out of Egypt and take them into the promised land. All they got to do is go, get up, get moving, trust what he said. You would think the ten plagues would be enough to convince them. You would think that that cloud by uh, day and the fire by night, oh yeah, oh hey, we just crossed the Red Sea. Like, here's a big sea, and then it spread apart, and we walked across it. And then it closed in behind us, killing all the Egyptians. You think that that would be enough to convince them that, oh hey, we're not going to starve to death. Oh hey, that promised land that God said was ours, we're just going to walk right in there and take it. But no matter what we go through, we always question God's word. We always do, because we cannot simply accept it as truth, because we allow, first of all, the temptation of the enemy, and I don't mean like a moral temptation, I mean the temptation of the enemy is to get you off kilter, off this. If he can get you thinking wrong, he'll get you acting wrong. But also, the fact that this has to be a foundation of which we have, and in today's culture, what is the foundation of the things of God, and really the things of anything? It's your feelings. What you feel about something is what matters in today's culture. I don't care what you feel if it is not grounded in truth. Your feelings can be lying to you. It's, it's kind of like, if you guys ever gone to the gym and you're working out? It doesn't always feel good. Paul's back there. He's like, Jim, what's this gym you speak of? Yeah, but when it comes over, we eat. There you go. <laughs> Pupusas. So when you go to the gym... And there's a, a 30-day cycle that happens. The first couple weeks, man, you're like, this, this is all right. This is a good hurt. It feels good to hurt. I like this hurt. I want more of this hurt. But then, a Monday evening, you get back from work, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to go tonight. I don't know if I really feel like it. And you get in there, and you get into the gym, and you start talking yourself out of it. Because is the pain worth it? Your feelings are dictating your, what you're going to do. And we allow this in every part of our life. I'll tell you a funny story. When I was going to school, we are down there in Tulsa, and I started off working for Sears. And I was selling flooring, essentially. I was a salesman. I traveled around. I measured houses and, you know, sold flooring. It was kind of a cool gig. I had fun with it. And um, we'd come home for Christmas one year, and, and my boss called me and said, listen, Sears is doing away with their flooring department. 
She's like, I wanted you to hear it from me before you saw it on the news because it was a big, big deal. And I was like, oh, okay. She's like, but listen, we don't want to lose you. We want to keep you. We want to move you over to Lawn and Garden. You'll sell Lawn and Gardens and Sporting Goods. And listen, I mean, this was not a career move. I'm just trying to pay the bills while I'm going to school. I said, well, I don't care what I sell. Just give me something. So I had to go in there and learn it. And, and, and I was, um, one of the things that we sold in the Sporting Goods side was treadmills. They had all sorts of treadmills. They had kind of the entry-level cheap one that anybody could pretty much afford. And you get in some fancy, fancy treadmills. I mean, I'm talking two to $3,000 treadmills. And what do treadmills do? They hold up towels and stuff like that and collect dust because nobody uses them. Well, we had this, this guy come in one day, a very large man. I mean, he it would have done him good to use the treadmill. In fact, his entire family was all rather large. And so I'm showing him the different features. And you know what his one concern was on the treadmill? I thought this was a joke. He's like, I need a big cup holder. And so I was like, well, okay, we go over to this model. It was a little bit more money, but the cup holders were huge. There was two of them. He's like, that's the one I want. I said, why is that? He's like, because I can put my big gulp here and my Cheetos here. And I laughed. He didn't. He was serious. And I was thinking like, you better just never step off this thing. I mean, I don't... It was weird, but, but the thing is, is that when things start to feel uncomfortable, we naturally go with our feelings. When things happen, we naturally go with our feelings. When something hits us unexpectedly, call it an attack from the enemy, call it an attack of your bad decisions, either way, we tend to go with what's comfortable. We reckon back to what we kind of know or our natural instincts. The problem is our natural instincts and our flesh are contrary to the things that God has said. This is why we must be equipped. We must lean on our knowledge and our training in the times of adversity, not on what we feel in the moment. Now, I've never been a Green Beret, don't intend to ever be one, okay? Believe me, if your, your life is dependent upon my ability to snipe somebody, we're all in trouble, all right? But I can't imagine some of the exercises that they go through feel very pleasant, Navy SEALs and all the training that they go through. I can't imagine any of that feels good. But they have to go through it so that when the moment arises that that training is necessary, they are prepared, they are equipped. This is where we need to be in the body of Christ. Unfortunately, this is not where we are. When crisis hits, we just cower. We're often too concerned with what people think, so we don't want to stand on the word too, too strongly or too loudly because, man, what if people think bad about us? What if they think we're crazy? What if they think we're just Looney Tunes and we're out there? I mean, there's a movement in this town today right now with, with uh, some different individuals that have taken the truth of the gospel and translated into some spiritual awakening, and now they're adding different spiritual things to the whole mix and all calling it God. You know why? Because there is only one God, we just call him by different names. This is the stuff that's going on. You think, oh man, Rockport, no, that's not what happens. I'm telling you, this is going on right here, right now. Everybody has an idea. This is why we have to armor up every day. We've got to be prepared. Let's look at that, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So, therefore, Paul, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Now, pause there for a minute. Now, whose strength are we standing in? The Lord's. His might, not yours. He says to put on the whole armor. Why? Because that way when the enemy attacks, the evil day comes, you are prepared. So it's kind of like if the bullets start flying and you're going to quickly try to throw on body armor or something along those lines, there is no way that you are going to be effective. They have to put that on. I have watched so many of uh, those, like, you guys like those cop shows? You know what I'm talking about? Like they follow the cops around. Sometimes I wonder if they're real. I'll tell you why. There was one time I was watching this, and a lady called the cops um, who showed up, said this guy stole her $20. And he's like, Okay, and so he's dealing with it. He took her $20 and didn't give her the pot she was trying to buy. She called the cops. Nobody's that stupid, right? right. I hope. I don't know. Anyway, 
Yeah, well, yeah, this was several years ago. <laughs> Depending on where you're at, this is perfectly okay now, right? But the thing is, is that when these guys, these SWAT teams are getting ready to go into the building, they don't wait to show up and they get everything dressed. And while someone's kicking out the door, they're throwing on the helmet, putting on the body armor. They are prepared at all times for anything that gets them. This is where we need to be. So therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. You stand therefore. You've got to gird your waist with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. Above all, take the shield of faith which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the devil. Um of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Think about this. Now let me show you this picture of the armor. Now we've looked at this, and we see, again, not, not a perfect replication here, but there is nothing uncovered. Even the image where you can see his knees are not exactly correct. Because the thing is, is that this interlocks, and that is the part we have to understand. It is an interlocking mechanism. You remove any one piece, it does not function to its greatest capability. You can't just take out the spark plugs of your car and think it's going to fire right. In fact, if you have eight of them and you take out one of them, it might start and it might run, but it won't run right. You see, there's a reason that all of this is put together. It is a complete set. Therefore, if you are missing any piece of it, you are ill-equipped. None of us want to be ill-equipped. So we start with the belt of truth. Now, I've shown you this before, but this belt is crucial. And then last week, we talked about the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this is closer to what it looks like. Now, truth, as I've said, is set up in two parts, objective and subjective. Subjective means it's your opinion. Objective means in and of itself, it is true and relied upon. So your opinion of a situation, if it's not grounded in Scripture, is nothing more than opinion. You have heard me say that, that Acts 17.11, that the Bereans were no more noble than anybody else because they took the word with readiness of heart and searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things which were said are true. Which means it doesn't matter what is said from this pulpit, even if it comes from me, if it is not grounded in Scripture. Because if it's not grounded in Scripture, it is nothing more than my opinion. Doesn't mean it's wrong, but it is my opinion. It has to be objectively true. The character of God is objectively true. The gospel is objectively true. Is there one way to the Father? Absolutely. How do we know? Because the one who rose from the dead told us so. He didn't say, go out there and look for spiritual things and you'll find happiness. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Narrow is the gate, wide is the road. Guys, that is objectively true. So it doesn't matter what anybody else says, we have to stand on that. But what happens when you don't know what this says? We begin to lean on our own understanding. When we have an idea of what Scripture says, but it's not grounded in the truth of what Scripture says. Let me give you a couple of examples. Remember, God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever tried to find that in the Bible? If you've tried, you have failed. Because it's not there. God gives us way more than we can handle. You think Paul was prepared to handle all of that stuff right in the moment, physically, naturally speaking? No, but he kept saying that my grace is sufficient for you. In it, you find all that you need. You see, we have ideas about the character of God. We have ideas about who He is. But unless we get into it and really dive into it, we don't know. If you eliminate Scripture, if the Bible in itself does not exist, how do we know anything about God? We really can't. We can have our feelings. We can have our encounters. But what do we ground that in? It has to be grounded in something. This is why God's preserved His Word. It was His responsibility to do it, and He's done it. That truth, objectively speaking, leads to the idea of righteousness. That breastplate being extremely ornate, this is, this is nothing. But you see that they're interlocking patterns or uh, pieces of metal that are wrapped around the individual, both front and back. They'd be tied in the front. Sometimes they'd be tied in the back. Sometimes they'd be tied on the side. All right? It's kind of like Ford, Chevy, you know, GMC. It's kind of the same thing, but different models. 
And the more that they would move around and the more that they would walk, the more it would rub against one another and it would get shiny. I mean, it would really, really stand out. But there's something in that. That breastplate locked into the belt. You eliminate the belt, it's no longer locked in. It's still there, but it's not locked into anything. It is immovable with that belt on. Always grounded in truth. That righteousness was given to you by God. That is the truth. You didn't earn it. Thus, because you didn't earn it, and you didn't do anything good enough to get it, you can't do anything bad enough to make it go away. Because it's His righteousness, not yours. It is His, given to you. So we have to keep those things in mind. That is the truth of the gospel. That we are in peace with God because of what Jesus did, and by faith we receive that gift. You guys with me? I mean, we've got to get this down. This is crucial to understanding. Because we started with two things, two parts of this armor that is extremely complex. Two parts is the truth and the righteousness. Now we're getting to the part which is a little different. It seems a little weird until you really, really dig into this. In verse 15, Ephesians 6 verse 15, it says, Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let me read that again. Having shod your feet with the preparation of of the gospel of peace. Now this is a loaded verse. But we have to understand something. That we're, we're hearkening back to the Roman soldiers. Of what they look like. Because these guys, Paul included, saw these guys all the, all the time. Paul spent time in Rome. Rome was in power. These soldiers were everywhere. Roman soldier shoes were not just some ordinary shoes. And they were not sandals. Okay? Understand that. They were typically made out of bronze or brass, and they were composed of two parts. There, the, there was something called a greave, which covered the legs, and it locked into the shoe itself. And they were very dangerous to their opponents. Now, just let me explain. So, let me sh- show you this picture. You see up here is the greaves on the very top there. I could not find photos that showed them all interlocking, so I've kind of pieced this together so you can get an idea. Those greaves would cover up to the shin and sometimes go over the knees. Think about like catcher's uh, gear, shin guards, right? Something similar to that. They were able to be moved. It was two parts that would lock around the leg. Then it had the part that went over the top of the foot, protecting that, with you had these leather sandals type things that were protected by that. They would lock in place, and you can kind of see, it's hard to see, spikes on the bottom of it. Okay? Kind of like golf shoes, a little more crazy. A little more intense. But they did not have these mass-produced in a Chinese factory. Okay? Every one of these had to be individually suited to the person. Why is that? Well, if... I took Jared. Jared, will you stand up so everybody can see you? Look at Jared there. Isn't he a fine-looking young man? Yep, yep, he's a good guy. If you look at his legs and you compare them to mine, if they made them all to fit Jared, I'm going to have a problem, right? Because I'm going to need all of them that they made for that day to wrap around one of my legs. And vice versa. Jared can move into my stuff. He can set up shop comfortably. I mean, they had to be individually formed and fit around each person. Now, when they put these things together, the shoe itself was made up from two different pieces of metal. The top and the bottom of the foot was covered with brass. Very top, all the way on the sides. They were held together with multiple pieces of leather. So, the bottom of these shoes were covered in spikes ranging from one inch to three inches long. They were pretty intense. So, when you look at these, and, and you're sitting there like, okay, I mean, this is, this is pretty serious stuff. Of course, it makes sense that your feet are shod with what? The preparation of the gospel of peace. Doesn't that sound peaceful? Of course not. But in the mind of Paul, he's looking at these from an offensive and a defensive standpoint. You see, too often we looked at this armor as simply there's one weapon the word of god that's true that it is the word of god but it's more than one weapon both had an offensive and a defensive portion to it because it can not only protect you but it provides a brutal weapon against an enemy when they attack as you can imagine with one to three inch spikes on there look at he says let's look at this let's break this down having shod your feet with the preparation 
of the gospel of peace. Now, this is important because when we think about this, let's think about these shoes. In fact, I think I've got a picture of what they're not looking like. You often seem depicted here. Do you see that? You see it's something along this line if you watch the movies or something like this. Listen, let me tell you something. No Roman soldiers caught dead in that. All right? Well, they may put them on after they're dead. It's like ballerina stuff. And this is the stuff you see on the movies. Like, they're walking around, they got these cute little things, they're tied up. What good does that do you? We're talking about armor. That's nothing. So, when we talk about shodding your feet, this is important. We shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. So, what does this word mean? It is a comp- compounded word. Most of these are in the Greek. It's hupo and deo. The word hupo means under. The word deo means to bind. When you put these together, it's hupodeomas, is how it's said in the Greek, to shot. It conveys the idea of binding something very tightly on the bottom of your feet. So this is not a picture of something loosely fitting, but something that has been tied extremely tight. Remember, custom made to you individually every single time. Paul's giving us descriptors here because this peace must be firmly tied upon and throughout our lives. We have a position of peace with God and it is firmly in place. And you bind it to the minds and the emotions of the same way that a Roman soldier would bind these things on. They're not going to come off. But that peace must be gathered, it must be acknowledged, and it must be stood upon. It cannot be taken from you when you fully grasp it. That is the shotting process. It puts it on. It ties it tightly. But then again, we see uh, that we shod your feet with what? Preparation. And this is crucial. Preparation is the Greek word edomason. It typically means readiness or preparedness or something along those lines. But when it's used in connection with these Roman soldiers, it portrays men of war who had their shoes tied on extremely tight and had extremely firm footing. They cannot be shaken. It's the idea of solidity, of firmness, a solid foundation. And here's the thing. When it comes to our relationship with God, peace is what gives us the foundation. And it's so secure that we can step out confidently in faith without being moved by what we see or by what we hear. This is the peace of God. Understand that. It is this foundation. Why are we talking about that? Because we don't walk around firmly in what this says. You see, this calls you the righteousness of God in Christ. And if He called you that, then why do you call yourself anything but? When He says that by His stripes you are healed, then why do we walk around afraid of sickness and illness? Why do we walk around afraid? Why do we walk around not going into battle doing the work of the gospel? Why do we fear going to missions field and putting our lives in danger in very dangerous territory when he says that he is sending us out to do the work of the mission? I mean, all of these things are dependent upon him. But what happens is when we are unprepared, whether we recognize it or not, when we are unprepared, we typically cower back to our natural inclinations. This and understanding this is more crucial than what your thoughts and your opinions are. Now you will see this more so as we get to the sword because I'm going to show you something very powerful that the Lord showed me a few years ago in this. But we have to stand on the truth of the word. In fact, we read that verse this morning that they were redeemed by the word of the Lord and the, the, uh, or the word of their testimony, the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. That's what it is. How do we know about the blood of the Lamb? In American culture today, if you just kind of go around and you hear that term, you didn't grow up and study this out, you really don't even know what that means. You go to church, you talk about that. They don't have any clue how powerful that is, but it was twofold. It was that sacrifice, that Passover sacrifice, and then the word of your testimony, what you've come through. That's what we stand on. So this preparation is the foundation here. Having shod your feet again with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now let's look at this word. Peace is Irene. Peace that prevails or conquering peace is what it's called. When Paul would use this in any salutation or anything, he would mean blessings and prosperity in in every area of a person's life. But Paul, using this word, is declaring that when an individual receives the truth 
of the gospel message, that truth brings the blessings and prosperity along with it. It implies that this conquering force will be so strong and effective, all the chaos formerly experienced by that individual will be replaced with peace that prevails in every area of life. This is how the Greek breaks down. This is the power of Paul's words here. Why does this matter? Because there's too many of us walking around scared. Walking around defeated. Walking around, not with our shoulders back and our head held high, as we've talked about these different aspects in Ephesians 6. But we walk around partially knowing what he says, but we don't always live it out. We, we don't always stand on that foundation of the truth of the power of God, but we often relegate back to our natural inclinations. That tells us something. It tells us the fact that we're not quite as equipped and prepared as we think we are. And the problem is, is that if we are so stubborn and hard-hearted that we don't recognize it, we'll never grow past it. But if we look in the mirror in the face of a situation, and we stand on the Word of God, we're not moved by what we see, we're not moved by what we hear, we're moved only by what we know and the Word of God, then we know where we are. There's a boldness that goes with this. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had through 20 years of ministry where somebody who has been born again, given their life to Christ, and will go through moments where they feel that they are an enemy of God, and God is just waiting to drop the hammer on them. I know they've given their heart to the Lord. So therefore, what do they have to fear? Nothing. What's happened is the enemy has come along and reminded them either of their past, reminded them of the things that they have done, the things that they have continued to do, that they are not really what they think, that they don't understand Scripture. And sometimes the enemy uses Scripture against them. And I have to remind them that they are the righteousness of God in Christ. And whom he calls a son is a son. What am I reminding them of? Not my opinion. I'm reminding them of what the Word said. What Jesus himself said. You can't get unborn again. There is no going back. So we have to understand this. Because just because there's a lack of peace in your life doesn't always mean that you're under attack. It could be a sign that you are simply not doing what the Word says. Don't give the enemy more power than what he has. He is a defeated foe. Stand on the truth of the word. We always go back to that. Now with this peace, you got to understand there are two different kinds of peace. There is the peace with God, number one. Peace with God. When a person experiences salvation for the first time, it happens immediately. I have seen people in a service like this and today during a time of worship, and they just suddenly, they are just overwhelmed with a sense that they need a Savior. There, there is something not right. And they cry out to God. And in that moment, they are broken free from the chains of the enemy. And they are made new. And they are made whole. And they recognize for the first time they're at peace with God. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. It says, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. Now, look at what this says. It pleased the Father to bring that upon Jesus. He made peace through the blood of His cross. It was to Himself and by Himself. What part did you play? Nothing. It was done. It was to Him, by Him, for Him. You once were alienated. You once were an enemy. But He has reconciled you. You were enemies where? In your mind. It always goes back to the knowledge of God. Just remember that. We'll talk about that more later. He has reconciled you, that you are holy, that you are blameless, and that you are above reproach. If that is true, and what Paul wrote is correct, then the takeaway here is, number one, that the peace with God is brought through the work of Jesus and that alone. That's wonderful news. Because if it was through your works, just like with the Mosaic Covenant, you could screw it up. You could get out of covenant. 
In this case, that covenant was sealed by His blood between the Father and the Son, and you enter in. You did nothing for it. That's number one. Number two is that He just called you holy. He called you blameless, and He said you are above reproach in His sight. And if He sees you as such, why would you allow yourself to look at anybody or anyone, including yourself, as anything less? Holy and blameless. Holy is set apart. Things are, God were set apart, holy, used in the temple, used all the time. Holy, set apart, used for Him. Blameless, they, I find no fault in Him. Jesus was blameless. Pilate said that He was clean. That is where you are. So why do we accept anything else? Because we don't stand on the Word. When the enemy comes in with something, we immediately take it. But what should we do? We take every thought captive. This is peace with God. This is where we have to accept, number one, that I have peace with God, that I am holy and blameless in His sight. But the other part of this is the peace of God. It is possible to have peace with God without ever experiencing the peace of God. Peace with God means that you are born again, that you've given your heart to the Lord. But your mind did not regenerate like your spirit did. God made you new, a new creation, not an old thing redone. He made you new. In fact, Leslie shared something on Facebook this week that was just phenomenal. If you're not following her, you need to be following her. At Leslie Derrimer. I don't know how that works, so don't ask me. I'm just kidding. But, but the thing is, it's like, man, it's this peace with God and the peace of God. They're two very different things. People walk around without the peace of God in their life. Therefore, because of that, they are being dominated by constant fretfulness, anxiety, worry, and any other kind of turmoil that you can think of. Now, what did we talk about last week? When they had this armor on, the Greek speaks about putting the whole thing on. You walk around, head high, shoulders back, fully confident. But most of the church walks around fretful, scared, intimidated. They're worried. You see, we think that somehow we're being pious if we don't walk around, forgive the term, a little arrogant. Because we are arrogant. Why? It's not based on us. We are arrogant in the fact that greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. We are arrogant in the fact that no weapon formed against me will prosper. Why is that? Because we have the promise of the Father. Always, every single time, backing us up, standing on that word. Therefore, we do not need to fret what is going on. This is what I've talked about this for many, many years, is that oftentimes when the economy goes bad, what happens? Giving dries up. Why is that? Because people are like, oh man, if I give, then I don't have enough to pay my bills. I'm sorry. We, we stand on God's word, that he meets my needs. So we should not fear. I'm not saying being foolish. I mean, obviously, if your income gets cut in half, then your ability to give changes. But what I'm talking about is I don't fear about it. I am not afraid of sickness. I am not afraid of anything. Jim, Alma, and I, one, uh, a couple of years ago, we went down to uh, El Salvador, and we had a breakfast with 40 of the MS-13 gang members, the leaders of it, right? It was the most interesting experience ever. Lots of face tattoos. Lots of them. And we're sitting there, we're like, I don't understand anything they're saying, and if they're telling me they're going to kill me, I'm, I have no idea it's coming. Like, they're on their phones watching for cops. It was, it was crazy. But there wasn't one of us that were afraid. Not one. We're doing the work of the ministry. We're, we're out there sharing the gospel, creating relationships with these people, helping spread this. And you know what? Here's the thing. To live is Christ, to die is gang. Gang. I mean, shoot me. Take me out. I don't care. I'm good. For two reasons. One, I am going to heaven. I am going to spend eternity with the Father. I cannot wait for the day. The second thing is, is I have life insurance. I'm worth way more dead than I am alive. Listen, if, yeah, exactly. It helps her. Don't cry for my wife if I go early. She's going to be doing just fine. I mean, the thing is, guys, it's like, what do we have to fear? But yet we, we cower to that. We, we go to this natural thing every time. So the peace of God is a protective peace. It protects us from all the things that we're talking about. That's why it is mentioned in here as peace as a weapon. You use it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. There's that word put on. Remember, angel, like putting on a brand new suit. Put it on. Tender mercies, kindness, 
humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving all or one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now stop. What did he just call them? Holy and beloved. Right? Those aren't loose words. Those are words that we kind of throw around. Those words meant something. You are beloved by God. He's talking to you. Put on his tender mercies, the kindness, the humility, all of this other stuff. But look at verse 14. But above all, these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, what did he say here? There's a lot that's going on. Number one, it says above all. Now, I'll get more into this later, but above all means above everything else. It's in front of you. We put on love. And it says to let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Now, that tells me something, that we have to allow it. In other words, we have to accept who he says we are and allow that peace to rule. No matter what's going on in life, no matter what craziness is going on in our world, pandemic, war, economies in the toilet, I don't care. The peace of God we must allow to rule in our hearts. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. His word, his promises. Whatever we do in word or in action, there is nothing else. We do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now think about that. Every word you speak is in the name of the Lord Jesus. And if that is true, then the words you say matter. Because when you hit your hammer and things come out of your mouth, you just said that in the name of the Lord Jesus. Take it that way. Everything you do, your actions matter. We do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because we give thanks to God the Father through Him. We come to the Father through Him. We're giving thanks in our words and our deeds. You guys getting this? You guys see this? This peace is crucial. You have to let it rule. The word rule is the key to understanding the peace of God. That word rule comes from the Greek word bra, uh, brabiel. I'm not saying that right. But it's used to portray an umpire or a referee that used to judge at the athletic games that were in, those, uh, in, the, in the ancient world there. Paul is telling us that we have to allow the peace of God to begin to call the shots in our lives. We are not moved by circumstances. We're not moved by what we see. We're not moved by what we hear. We're not moved by what we feel. Everything filters through the Word. Why does this matter? Because the devil will take advantage of unrenewed areas of your mind. I'm telling you guys, I have seen people who have been born again for longer than I have been alive. And something happens either to them individually or, or a community or globally. And I watch the enemy get in there and begin to play with their mind. And they begin to just, their response is not a biblical response. They cower in fear. They freak out. But the God of peace must rule. People get on an emotional roller coaster. They're up one day, they're down the next. Satan cannot play games with the emotions of somebody who is governed by peace and truth. They can't. It's the peace of God that causes the enemy's assaults to be ineffective. So, verse 15, Ephesians 6, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's peace as an offensive weapon, but what about a defensive weapon? Well, when we look at this grieve, it covered from the top of the knee to down to the upper part of the foot. It was crucial in protecting their legs because things would happen. When you're out there, they're talking hand-to-hand -hand combat. They had a sword. I'll get into the different types they use and all that stuff later. But it was kind of like anything goes, just don't lose. That was one thing my dad taught me. He said, if you're ever in a fight, and he said, don't get in one. But if you're in a fight, win. Don't worry about what they think. In other words, you just kick and bite and claw and scream and do whatever you got to do. Just don't lose. That's what he was trying to tell me. But these things were crucial because a broken leg, a bruised leg, a cut leg meant the soldier could not respond in the same way or as quickly to an attack. It often mean that once one part was compromised, soon the rest would follow. They were required to walk 
through some extremely difficult areas because they didn't have paved highways. They did not have a wonderful interstate system. They would have roads, and for their time, boy, they were, they were really good. In fact, even compared to our time, a lot of them are a lot better than what we have today. I was driving from Lincoln the other day, and I thought my truck was going to go off the road. It was shaking so bad, so, and it had nothing to do with my truck, okay, just so you know. So, but what would happen is these greaves would give them this confidence that they could walk into any situation. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it's that when I put on a pair of work gloves, I can stick my hand in almost anything, and it doesn't even phase me. I'll grab anything, pick up anything, doesn't make any difference. You take them gloves off, forget about it. I don't want to touch nothing. I'm the same way. It's just weird. I don't know if other people are like this, so don't judge me if you're not. But, but when I go to a beach, I hate touching the bottom of the water because it's like what am I going to step on like oh but I put on shoes I don't care I'm 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 good to go like water shoes I'm talking about I don't know if I'm the only one that way but I hate it it's weird I'm like oh I'm gonna step on a fish I'm gonna step on turtle catfish is gonna bite my foot that didn't sound like a piece of God at all does it there's probably a beaver down there just looking for chop something to chomp on I mean, I remember as a kid, I was crawling off a, a, up a ladder, getting off this deck, and a, like a bluegill or something came up and bit my toe, and it freaked me out ever since. So maybe that's my problem. Maybe I need therapy. I don't know. So, but there's this confidence that they had in it. So how does peace protect us? Well, look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, be anxious for nothing. What does nothing mean? Do I need to break that down in the Greek? No, it means nothing. Okay. So not anything. No thing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That word guard means tereo. It's a Greek word. It says to keep, to protect, to guard, or to garrison. It is the picture of a band of Roman soldiers standing watch over something that needs protection. Paul is saying that the peace of God that will guard your heart and mind is unsurpassable. It surpasses all understanding. In other words, it doesn't make any sense while you are so confident. We're confident when we shouldn't be. We're calm when we shouldn't be. We're happy when we shouldn't be. And we are relaxed when we shouldn't be. Because we're confident not in us, not in the economy, not in the world around us. We're confident in God. It is the foundation. Neil and Leslie experienced that, that Un, like, why, Leslie, are you so calm? Why are you handling this so well? What else do I have? I am confident in what God said. Ethan's a better example of that. We're all like, man, that's awesome. Neil was supernaturally healed from something that should have taken his life. And Ethan's over there is like, what'd you expect? That's a great point. What did we expect? And because of that, now they've got this testimony to tell. And I'll tell you something the Lord put in my heart for you this morning, is that this is just the beginning, but you're rising up. Your ability to teach and to preach will grow as you continue to step forth into what He's called you to do. So just get ready, because the time is coming. You will grow individually, and you will grow in your studies, and you'll grow in your ability to communicate to a mass crowd, but God is going to use this for His glory, more so than He already has. The gift He's given you is not for you, and not just for us, but for the world around us to see the truth of the gospel in everything we do. No charge for that. Isaiah 26, verse 3. It says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So let me ask you something. When the world around you is going chaotic, where is your trust? He says here that his mind is stayed on you. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. In other words, kept on you, on what you've said, on your word. Because of why? He trusts in you, not the circumstance, not what's happening. You see, the battlefield is always in the mind. If he can get you thinking wrong, if he can get you to question God's word, to question God's promises, then you will begin to act wrong. That is why we are to renew the mind. It all comes together. These shoes, this piece is our foundation. These spikes help the soldiers footing in place. As they were standing there doing hand-to-hand combat, they would have this firm footing. 
It's in wrestling. The first thing they teach you is you got to get them off balance. You get them off balance, you can take them down. God gives us supernatural peace that firmly plants our feet to the ground. Regardless of what I see, regardless of what I'm hearing, I will not move from the Word of God. I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care if they think I'm crazy. I don't care if they disagree with me. I will stand on the Word. This is where we have to be. As the church, firmly footed in this peace that comes from God. Ephesians 6, 14 says, stand therefore. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. 2 Corinthians 1, 24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. By faith you stand. It's interesting that the majority of the verses in the New Testament that have to do with standing also have to do with faith. Our faith means our trust in God. That is what the word means. It's not that we are just blindly following. We know His word is true and His promises are strong. Things come against our faith every day. People, situations and circumstances come against our faith every day. But we have this peace of God that firmly fixes us to the bottom of our feet, holding our stance It's a supernatural peace that makes you immovable. And unfortunately, most believers never experience this. They are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by every circumstance. As times get tough, they're quick to throw in the towel. That's why in Mark chapter 4 and Luke 8, it talks about the four soils. What happens to three of them? One never gets born again because the enemy comes in and steals the seed. Two of them quickly produce, but they wither away. Why? Because the riches of this world, the deceitfulness, all of this other stuff going on takes it away. They allow things to distract them from what God has done for them. They allow circumstances to keep them from growing into the deeper things of God. And we must learn to plant our feet firmly in the soil that is God's word, that is by faith we stand right where we are. We are unmoved. We are unhindered by any attack. Peace is a divine weapon that will insulate you from the attacks of the enemy every single time. It's His peace. When you are not moved by the circumstances facing you, You will stand in absolute peace. Here's the thing, guys. We tell about these stories. We went through an entire year looking at revivals of old and how God has moved through our time and times of the past. But you look at people like John Lake, who in the face of the bubonic plague walked right into it, not moved because he knew what the Word said. Smith Wigglesworth did not care what anybody thought of him. I mean, you have to understand something. That when he was praying for people, there were times that he would punch somebody in the stomach. There's a story of him kicking a baby, and the baby was healed instantly. I am not advocating baby kicking. But that man was so moved. And every one of these guys, count them all, had people coming against him, said they're they're nuts. They'd go to jail because they were practicing medicine without a license. But they never strayed away from the message of peace. That God is our Savior and our healer and made us whole. It is defensive. It is offensive. Romans 16, 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That word crush, which also can mean bruise, is suntribo. It's the act of smashing, utterly crushing grapes into wine. It's also used to denote the act of snapping, breaking, and crushing bones. Okay? The picture of breaking bones so badly that they cannot heal. It is impossible. This is showing us a couple of things. Number one, where does Satan belong? Under our feet. He has no authority and no ability to hurt us unless we allow that roaring lion to reach out and devour us. The second part is, is this is a joint partnership between God and us. We walk it out but we stand on His promises. We, by the power of God, keep Satan where he belongs. You have to understand something, that these shoes, this gospel of peace, is not very peaceful sounding. Because the spikes and the metal and all of this stuff tied in together. It's kind of like they try to portray Jesus as this flower child today, but He walked around, ticked off a lot, and told a lot of people exactly what He thought. He brought out whips. It's awesome. This whole thing is similar to the story in Joshua 1, dealing with the Israelites because God freely gave the children of Israel 
the promised land. It was theirs. Go take it. It was theirs. It's yours. It belongs to you. But to possess it, they had to march in. They had to take it because the enemy was trespassing on what rightfully belonged to them. Why did it belong to them? Because God had declared it. It was theirs. What did he tell them? Joshua 1 verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. Every place that the sole of your foot treads upon. Now what should we do in that situation? Start walking. If I told you all today that every step you take, that ground belongs to you. Y'all be walking up and down acres all day long. No questions asked. Like, that's mine. Oh, and that's mine. And that's mine. We'd all be farmers here pretty quick. But the land here was filled with giants. They were the enemy of God, the offspring of the serpent. On their own, they could never defeat them. But there was a partnership in obedience to God, and the giants would have been no match. We see it later with David and Goliath. We know the same with us, marching in tandem in obedience with God makes us absolutely unstoppable. The problem is we either quit marching or we just negate to stand on the word. We don't allow the peace of God to flow freely in our hearts. But look at verse 20 again in Romans 16. And God of peace will crush Satan on your feet shortly. Now oftentimes we hear shortly like, oh, here pretty quick. And I can mean that. But here is the, it's the Greek word tacos. T-A-C-H-O-S, not tacos like Taco Tuesday, probably tacos, I don't know. But it depicts, the, it depicts a picture of a large group of soldiers marching down the street. Now, why does that matter? This shortly here doesn't refer to a time frame, but it refers to how they move. They were taught you take very hard, short, heavy steps when they marched. The reason for that, there was an intimidation factor. Because oftentimes as they were marching, they were marching down cobblestone streets in some capacity. And as they began to move, that noise in unison. You guys ever heard soldiers march? You hear their boots hit. Now put spikes on the bottom of them. Get thousands of them lined up in unison, stepping together. The noise could be heard everywhere and they came into town. It was intimidating. People would freak out. It's kind of like the sound of horses back in the day. They'd hear the horses coming. People would start freaking out. They knew something was going on. These guys stopped for no one. They were not moved, so much so that as they were marching down the street, if somebody fell in front of them, they would trample them. They were not allowed to stop, and nor would they. The person would be killed, trampled to death with those spikes. They taught us the same thing when I was in marching band in high school, is that you kept your eyes forward, you stayed in unison, and you never moved. It doesn't matter if the horses went in front of you. You march right through it. I mean, they hammered it. They're like, we can clean your shoes later. You never get off step. But here again, Paul is painting a very clear picture. If the devil wants to stand in front of you and try to oppose you and the work of God that's going on in your life, don't stop and ask him to get out of your way. March right through him. He cannot stop you. You guys seeing how all of this is beginning to work in unison? Every part is crucial. Every part is so important. Allow the peace of God to rule in your heart. When the circumstances don't make sense, do not be moved by what you see. Do not be moved by what you hear. Stand on His Word. It's absolute truth every single time. 